0: We are It's More Than Just a Champ. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right, episode nine of Lion Legacy. So, Ross, one of the things that has been a common theme or say, a common question during our guest interviews has been the impact of the pandemic on people's careers, how they've had to adapt. When you think about a certain profession, we can all talk about teachers and the impact that they've had to go through in terms of. Adapting, whether they're hybrid or if they're having to do it fully virtual, or some are back in school and wearing masks, and it's a completely different situation. So, even though May is Teacher Appreciation Month, we certainly thought it was timely, and quite honestly, every month should be Teacher Appreciation Month. But we thought it was timely to bring on a teacher, and we have a very, very special guest um, for this week's episode. But before we get into the heart of the discussion, I am very curious about teachers' impact in your life and maybe one or two that you would want to recognize.
1: Absolutely. I Having a uh, finance background, I immediately thought of, maybe was there a math teacher? A lot of great teachers, thinking back to my high school days. But actually, I'm going to throw you a curveball here. One of the teachers I most appreciated in high school was a gentleman named Mr. Wills, who was an English teacher at my high school. I may have had him for English, but more importantly, I was involved with the school newspaper in high school. And Mr. Wills was the teacher sponsor of the student newspaper. In my professional life, I I don't really have all that much of a creative outlet, but I do enjoy writing on the side. I still hang my hat on having a blog 15 years ago before blogs were popular. Give myself a little pat on the back there. Um, kidding, but no, but really I, I look back on, on my days working in the student newspaper when I was like 16 years old and just having a love for writing for fun and also just really appreciating the media and just investigative type journalism, which I love to read today. And then also really just goes into what we're doing here, just learning about people's careers and what Penn state means to them. And I think it all just goes back to that love for, for investigating and learning something new. And, Jared, how about you?
0: Yeah, so I'm going to actually go to my time at Penn State and recognize three, and I'll do it pretty quickly. One was Dr. Kretschmar. I took a 400-level class my freshman year, and I didn't realize that – well, I realized it was a 400-level class, but I didn't realize there was a prerequisite and that freshmen shouldn't be taking 400-level. The class was called Sports Ethics, and I was like, oh, this sounds fascinating, fantastic. I'm going to enroll And we got about two and a half weeks into the class, and he starts talking about the prerequisite, and I didn't take the prerequisite. So I had to speak to him afterwards and say, I'm sorry, I'm a freshman here. I somehow got into your class. It was a small class, maybe about 30 students, and he let me stay. It was a challenging class, I will say that, but I had a great time. I learned a lot. It really taught me to think differently. I met a great friend in Abby Bauer in that class as well, so very, very fond memories. Second would be Dr. Bob Ricketts, who taught a lot about life's lessons. I think we've all had a professor that kind of goes beyond the educational nature. And then the third one actually was my academic advisor, and I think it's important that we also talk about educators from the ecosystem perspective as well. And Mrs. Krimmel was someone who... Is still very special to me, but really helped guide me as I was going through many different career questions, life questions, and trying to figure out where my passion was. And she helped me find it, you know, really appreciative of all three and quite honestly, all teachers throughout my educational journey that have created a, a foundation and have impacted me today as well.
1: Absolutely. I, I also will echo that sentiment. I have the utmost respect for teachers, especially with two school age kids of my own and, and living through what we all lived through back last spring and just upending our world, trying to help my son through first grade at the time. My, my sister-in-law, her husband, my brother-in-law's wife, very close friends of ours. They're all teachers and just give them just the greatest appreciation of what they do every day for kids in our community. Yep, I think we
0: all know someone. And if you're going to do one thing after listening to this podcast, thank a teacher. Absolutely.
1: And so the teacher that we spoke with is Jen Wall. We're not going to give too much away about her background because you will learn about it on today's episode, but we are sure that you'll be impressed. Uh, A few of the takeaways that we learned from this episode was the pandemic's impact on students and teachers alike technology's role in education, and she gives us not one but two courses that she would make mandatory nationwide if it was up to her. And so with that, class is in session.
0: All right, let's welcome Jen Wall, 2012 Penn State graduate with a master's in educational leadership from the College of Education. She has spent many years teaching history, psychology, and sociology at Loyal Township High School and is also a professor at the Pennsylvania College of Technology. We quickly learn that Jen doesn't sit still, and I mean this in a good way. She was selected by the National Consortium for Teaching About Asia to participate in a two-week study tour in China, then a three-week study tour in Japan by the Japan Society, and also study restorative justice and teaching for peace in Delhi, India, at the International School for Jan Studies. A colleague said about Jennifer, and I quote, her passion for the material, care for her students, and continual desire to improve her knowledge base and pedagogy is impressive and refreshing. She's possibly the most energetic instructor I've ever observed, and her students are clearly more connected and engaged because of it, end quote. After all that, There's no surprise that she's been honored by numerous organizations, including awarded the 2018 Pennsylvania Teacher of the Year. Jen, it is a great honor to have you on The Lion Legacy. Welcome.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So, Jen, let's let's jump right in on the hot topic that's on our mind, that's on everybody else's mind. It's been quite a year for everyone. I know looking back on the last year and also having two kids of my own, I think about the teachers out there and how much they've all and you've all had to adapt. Tell us a little bit about what the last year has been like for you.
2: Sure. It's been wild. I think it was two weeks after March 13th, which is when the world stopped, we began as Pennsylvania teachers teaching virtually virtually. But remember, none of us had ever really done that before, so it turned into trying to manage our classrooms in an asynchronous fashion, doing the best we could. And I live in a rural area, so I had to contend with some of the issues here. For example, some students don't have Internet access. Some students didn't have access to devices that weren't shared with other siblings in their household. I had students that were driving to places like the parking lot of Dunkin' Donuts or the parking lot of um, our local gas station, which is Sheets, just to access the internet to be able to complete their schoolwork. So that kind of turned everything upside down. But I did, in fact, resign from the high school in June, and I took a job teaching at the Pennsylvania College of Technology. And believe it or not, we have been teaching in person without fail the entire time so it's been different and it is probably significantly different than other colleges and universities in the commonwealth of pennsylvania but we we go to class in person every day we wear masks some of us double mask. some of us double mask and face shield it's a requirement of the college even when you're walking outside by yourself but we have managed to pull it off and we are teaching in person with truly a low impact we get a COVID count every day as to how many students are, or rather people on campus are affected. And the numbers stay two, three, four, sometimes six. But we're managing to do this the way we did it before.
0: I imagine that's got to be though tough dynamics as well. When you think about Ching, right, you like to be interacting, engaging group projects. Has that completely shifted as well?
2: Yes, group projects are nearly impossible. I don't want people to, you know, touch each other, get together unnecessarily. Back when I was teaching at the high school in a distance learning type fashion asynchronously, I had students that wouldn't check into school at all. I had A students who were failing all of a sudden because they weren't turning in any work. And I had to remember that this was a time for grace over grades because students were not living under the same circumstances that they were prior to. So it was really difficult to assess learning and knowledge in a time where people were managing just to simply exist.
0: You touch on a great point there because teachers play such a pivotal right beyond standard education and knowledge. There's so much going on pandemic and then Black Lives Matter. How do you and other teachers also support students as they're trying to navigate this world?
2: yeah, so being as understanding as possible in in these most difficult circumstances, I think is the best way possible. You're not going to have students learn unless they unless they feel there's a relationship with you, unless they feel that you want them to succeed. I think it was the famous TED talk that Rita Pearson said that kids don't learn from people that they don't like. And and there's so much truth to that. There has to be compassion and there has to be relationship before there's anything academic. And as soon as you build that with students, they will want to learn from you. They will want to produce, they will want to perform, even if they don't necessarily love the subject you're teaching, because there's a respect for the human being involved. And and I, I have found that people grow And even if they don't necessarily grow with the academic subject, they might grow in some of their learning capacity as a result of the experience between two individuals.
1: So shifting a little bit, Jen, the pandemic has certainly accelerated or necessitated an acceleration of technology across all industries, and especially in the educational world. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to, to education, is there a particular aspect of this new digital world that we're living in that you're excited to use to your advantage going forward?
2: I love that my colleagues are, and myself, we're all forced to communicate in a way that's completely outside of the classroom. It makes, it's I, probably more difficult for most people, but it makes teaching not something that just happens in the classroom, but it's around the clock it's week long. There's ongoing discussions and communication. I'm finding that, for example, the discussions that I have with students, they're not just in the classroom. I'm sure they start there, but then I post them online and we continue to have them. And these are things I wouldn't have necessarily done before because I didn't have the tools to do them. So, the, that part that like the continuity of education, I think that's pretty exciting. I think it's also pushed people who are uncomfortable and forced them, frankly, to use technology in a newer digital age, which makes them more accustomed to the students that we teach. It's putting us all on the same level for a period of time. And I don't think it's ever really been like that before.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's also beyond just teaching. The world has forced us into this kind of dual adoption where there's certain things, if I take a silver lining approach, there's certain things that the pandemic has brought out in the world that Maybe good going forward, maybe a curbside pickup at your local restaurant that never did it before. And now, hey, in the after days, whenever that is, hopefully soon enough, that's something that'll stick around. Similarly to education, right? I'm sure that you can take the best aspects of technology and what you're using today. And then let's say two years from now, you can use that, but in a nice, more comfortable setting.
2: Sure. It's forced us to become innovative in a really great way. I like to push creativity as much as possible. I think that's what, you know, we don't succeed because we're great at academics. We succeed because we're creative and we're innovative. And this has pushed everybody to be as innovative as possible, good or bad. I think that it's growth is great. And if this causes people to, to have a growth mindset and a creative mindset, then at least we're doing something in the right direction, even if it's not under fantastic circumstances.
1: Absolutely. So shift gears a little bit and we're going to talk more about you. So first, give us a little bit of a sense of what your catalyst was for wanting to go into education.
2: Okay, so there's a, and it's not really a crazy long story, but I I really loved the classroom. I found that the classroom was my haven. My my life with my parents was not the most, I'm being careful here because mom and dad might hear this, right? (laughs) Um, there, There was a lot of tumultuous stuff that was going on during my childhood years. And the classroom was a place where I felt capable, and it kept me from making very poor choices. And even when I was making poor choices, I found that success in the classroom and good relationships with people who wanted to work with me was far more gratifying than other activities I could have been engaging in. So I knew when I was in 11th grade, I wanted to go to school and I wanted to teach social studies. I was fascinated with how history worked. I was fascinated with how the human mind worked and I wanted to put it all together. I remember thinking like, gee, I'd love to teach a a class that's both history and psychology put together. Of course, that never really worked out that way, but I, I wanted to do that. And so I found a way to a school that I could afford that was also based on some other circumstances at the time. And I, I went to Cabrini, which allowed me to be a big fish in a small pond and feel like I could really succeed. I, I grew up in New York. It's the biggest pond. It's the ocean. I didn't have really an opportunity to stand out. So going to a small school in a small place in Pennsylvania allowed me to truly stand out and push forward. And I had a student teaching experience when I was 21 years old. And my first day, I knew this is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. This is where I belong. I loved it. I still love it.
1: I, I'm curious. Is there a teacher that you look back on and maybe there's, you know, you say something that that he or she used to say, or you find yourself using a style of teaching that in your back of your mind, you're going, oh, this is exactly what Mr. or Mrs. used to do. Is that like a thing?
2: Yes, it's a thing. So, I have people have asked me this several times. I was featured by Crayola years ago and they asked me the same question. They published her name and I was so hoping to hear from her, but I actually have no idea what this person is anymore. I had a high school history teacher named Mrs. Renee McLean and she was amazing. She had this zest for knowledge and this excitement. She would jump up on the desk and yell crazy things. She would show us films where she would stop them and explain this depth of every single component. And I remember she lent me a book and I still have it. I shouldn't admit that. I didn't steal it. <laughs> I just forgot to give it back. So I, I, she lent me this book. And I remember thinking there's so much knowledge I can get out of this stack of papers. What if I continue reading at this level and at this rate, imagine all the other information I could get. And so I find myself being loud and crazy in the classroom in a way that in a way that she was, cause she inspired me and I thought hell that might work with other people too.
0: (laughs) We've got to find Renee McClain. Yeah, we've to find
2: Renee. I had a college professor too, who was pretty amazing. And I'm not quite sure what's happened to him either but he was the same way. So I clearly have a type and a style.
0: I'm sure they all wonder, you know, I imagine being a teacher, I'm not a teacher myself, of course, but you'll probably always wonder, and maybe you could talk about this, what do my students do, where they go on after they graduated high school, or what are they doing today?
2: Yes, we do wonder for sure. I will say though, because I live in a really small town, I live where I teach and I'm very proud of that. I love to be part of the community. I love to go to the sports games and I love to go to the the theater productions and really be a part of their lives. So I actually know where a lot of my students are and what they're doing, which sounds really strange. but there were certain classes I had really great relationships with, and I still speak to. You. I was just talking to one right before we started this podcast this evening. Where are you? What are you doing? Do you need any help? What can I do for you? And I really do find that I have lots of relationships with students dating far back. Some of them are, are in you know their early 30s now, and I still, you know, meet them for lunch before COVID and have discussions about their lives. And that alone is worth all the difficulties in the classroom.
0: It's amazing right there. And just really yeah. speaks to why you were honored with the Pennsylvania Teacher of the Year honor a few years ago. Obviously, a very prestigious award among many qualified nominees, I'm sure. But when I was looking at some of the research, I was like, oh, she got this great award. But I didn't realize this whole new level of leadership that came with it in the educational field. Tell us a little bit about that year.
2: The commitment's actually 25 months, but I had no idea when I won it. (laughs) So they don't tell you that. That it's going to be a very long road. So the the first year, you're state teacher of the year, and there was a variety of keynote speeches and workshops that I did all across the state. I did a couple in Michigan as well. I'm not really sure where those came from. There were conferences that I was expected to attend, bring back information. So I was really working full-time, still teaching every day in my classroom, I was teacher of the year advocating for the state at a variety of different on a variety of platforms. So like for example, I did a lot of union work for the Pennsylvania State Education Association. That was I did quite a bit of that. I worked for the Pennsylvania Council for the Social Studies. I, I can't even really remember everything off the top of my head. I'd have to go back and look at my Excel spreadsheet. And I was working part-time because the travel was actually so expensive that I needed to support this award, which sounds so crazy. A- and I was pregnant the entire time.
0: <laughs> wow.
2: So I had a baby in the middle of being Teacher of the Year. <laughs> it's all just insane. The second year was actually fascinating, though. So the second year, you were what's called national candidate. So someone else has picked as State Teacher of the Year, and then you go on to do another year uh, and a month doing national work uh, representing Pennsylvania. That was pretty cool. So we worked with Google for Education. We worked with TED Talks, TED for Ed. We worked with NASA at Huntsville and the Education Commission for the States. I could just sit here and name major organizations. ETS, the College Football National Championships. That was pretty cool. Extra Yard for Teachers. And at each place we were representing our state. And we were also working to do all types of research and bring back this information to our home state and kind of disseminate it to the teachers that we had contact with. So every teacher gets assigned. I'm not going to call them a mentor. They're really, they're a paid person from the state that's supposed to advocate for you and travel for you. Pennsylvania doesn't have one. I was lucky enough to have our state secretary of education step in and say, I'll do this with you. So secretary of education, Pedro Rivera, who's, Uh, He was a pretty big deal, got to step in and work with me. And I get to spend really 13 months working directly with him. That was fantastic.
0: And this is all while you were teaching?
2: This is all while I was teaching full-time and I had a part-time job. So I was working all day, every day, five days a week, teaching three nights a week as well until 8 p.m. And I had a newborn baby.
1: (laughs) And you had no idea when you won the award that this was all involved?
2: I had no idea what was going on. That's something I just knew I had gone through the application process and all of that. And when I was awarded, somebody actually took me out to dinner and brought this really big binder and slammed it down on the desk and said, this is what's going to happen to you.
0: You were like, Oh, I thought I was just getting a plaque.
2: Right? No, no, we did get a plaque.
1: So Jen, you have, I'm switching gears again a little bit here. You have a passion for travel. So you mentioned a little bit, you got the chance to travel around Pennsylvania and you travel around a little bit as the Pennsylvania Pennsylvania honoree, but in your personal life, and I guess also in your professional life, you've traveled around quite a bit. Uh, I understand you've been to, have you been to every state in the U.S.?
2: I've been to 49 states. I have accidentally missed Arkansas. It's nothing personal, Arkansas. I just haven't
1: gotten there yet. And I understand you've been to upwards of 50 countries around the world, which is just, that's fascinating. So I guess I'm curious, first off, post-pandemic, what's Mm -hmm. on your list of, of countries to visit?
2: That's a great question. So I would love to go back to the Middle East and see my family. I went 24 years without seeing them, which was a huge mistake. And I would love to go back and see all of them. I have a lot of cousins. I have over a hundred cousins. And so I would love to go and spend more time with them as well. And when I'm done with that, my husband does an extensive amount of business in Serbia. And he also works in Germany and Estonia. And I would love to go to those places with him. I've been to Germany and Estonia, but I would love to go to Serbia and, and also visit and work with the people that he works with every day.
1: Well, wow. there you go.
2: I have a couple of other bucket list items. Like I'd love to do the eastern, the southern eastern component of Africa. I've, I've never been there as well, and I, I have a dream about doing the Silk Road. But I need to be, I need to not have little kids when I do that one because <laughs> it's dangerous.
0: Hopefully, we'll be traveling again soon.
2: So, I hope uh, so. You could start I cross
0: you. crossing those off the bucket list as well. But I know also with your travels, you tend to take a lot of what you've learned back into the classroom. Can you share a little bit more about how you do this?
2: Sure. So there's two things that I always do when I travel. And this started way back when I, I think I started solo traveling at 17. I'm not sure that's completely accurate. It might be 18. And I would always do two things I would find a way to visit a school. And I'd love to learn about the education system and actually talk with teachers and kids. I did that before I was even working as a teacher. And that is something I get, I I have a deep passion for. I want to know what other people are doing, how I can bring it home and what I can do with it. I think that, you know, you're never a master at your craft. You just You just learn from other people and you do the best that you, you can, but we're better if we don't sit in our silos and think we're awesome. We're, we're better if we get from other people and we put together like the, the best of all the worlds that we can find. And I also um, love to bring home artifacts and food. So I like to cook quite a bit. And before pandemic, nobody really had a problem. If I made a feast and brought it to class, I have some culinary skill that comes from a long line of women in my family who all have culinary skills expected. And so I would go someplace, I would travel, I would learn a signature dish that I could feed a large amount of people and I would bring it to class and we would discuss culture and we would discuss history of that place because I think when you break bread, you can break borders and it builds community amongst people. I also like to bring home artifacts so people can touch, see, and feel things from other cultures and it's not just some abstract place that I'm discussing on a PowerPoint with pictures.
0: I love that. I don't know if you just coined that right now, break bread, break borders, but that's perfect. Yeah, that was that, that's <laughs> solid. I like that.
1: Jared, Jared, Jared write that one Pretty down. That's good. good.
2: There, it's, to be exactly. fair, there was a show that used to be called Breaking Borders, and I got the idea that if okay, if we, if I can break bread with people, I can break these cultural barriers that people will understand one another as best as possible.
0: I also like what you said, too, about learning from others and learning from other educational systems and educators from other countries. Is there an aspect that you remember from a country that you feel like the U.S. could benefit from?
2: Yes. So when I was in China, I was... I was just standing in a classroom one day and all of the other educators were invited to play basketball except for me. And if you could see me standing up, you'd understand why I am very small. I'm five feet tall, I weigh about 95 pounds. So the Chinese students were not interested in playing basketball with little old me at all, but everyone else did. And then some of the female students took me on a tour of the school garden which I thought was fascinating. You don't have a school garden. What do you mean high school students have a school garden? And they told me it was a concept in, in Chinese policy at the time. This was in 2011, called Zhu Zhijia which was educating the whole child. So just as much time as my students spent learning math, um, learning language, they were in English class, obviously, that's how I met them learning Chinese history, they also were spent doing life skill type activities. And so they were all growing food at the school. And this wasn't like a tiny school garden. This was a massive school garden. And they were growing food. And at the end of the day, my students were going watering, being responsible for this food, and then picking and bringing select things home for their families. I think there's a lot to be learned from that in terms of responsibility and community that I thought was really beautiful I would love to do that sort of thing here
1: very cool you know you think about home economics right you know that kids I, I hopefully they still have that in junior high but which is pretty uh, maybe they don't I don't know I did when I was a kid but anymore. but you know but something something like that takes it to a whole other level and where it's really it's more than just a skill it's a responsibility it's it's an element of sustainability. You could go on and on, but I really, I like that. I like that. So which actually is a nice transition into my next question, which is if you could select one course or subject that would be mandatory for every single school to teach, Mm -hmm. in your opinion, what would that be and why?
2: Do I have to pick just one? (laughs) Uh,
1: Give us more than one. That's fine.
2: So I'm going to pick two if that's okay. Sure. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) The first one uh, would have something to do with finances. Absolutely. Because I think that we don't do that at all. And I find that a lot of my students that have graduated will call me on a regular basis. I just got off the phone with a student who said, what's first month's last month's security deposit mean? She's 23. So this is the kind of thing that I think students would know if we taught. That's a life skill. I think that's a necessity. So that has nothing to do with my subject area, but I think that goes back to that whole Suji Shiyu concept of educating the whole child, not just in the academic subjects. I will also have to say, I think every student should have to take some sort of world history or world culture class. We are very American-centered in the history classroom in America. I've had the privilege of traveling to classrooms all over the United States and I really see that we truly don't know a ton about the rest of the world. And perhaps for the benefit of our, our future and the benefit of our, our kids, we could do a lot better as a country. We were educating students, not only about the American history that we have created in textbooks, but also about what is going on in the world and how similar we all are, the mistakes we made and how we can do better from there and understand one another.
0: Let's make it happen. I think you're spot on there. Definitely on the finance. I think we've all struggled Absolutely. at some point. I know you grew up in New York City. I grew up in New York City. I think we were both privileged in some regards to be at schools where naturally you had a little bit of the United Nations right there. But I, I could imagine in other schools, they don't have the same benefit there.
2: Of course. Queens is the most diverse county in the United States. So if you think about it, it was yes. odd for me to move away and not hear a multitude of languages every day and, and see people from all walks of life. It's strange to live in a rural area where it's kind of a homogenous population.
0: Yeah, I'm like you. I didn't really appreciate that until I, I left Queens because when you grow up in that, you think it's normal, right? So we have a lot of non-teachers, non-educators that listen to this podcast what can we all do to better support teachers and educators? What's that one message to everyone who's listening?
2: We care about your kids. Please give us the benefit of the doubt. I think I think we like to blame teachers a lot for the problems and the faults that are happening. But most of the times, our hands are tied. We're being told what to do. Sometimes we feel like if we don't toe the line, our jobs could potentially be at risk. And so we have so many guide, guidelines to follow, but we really truly do want to do what's best for your kid. I think to assume good intention is probably the best way to go. I know people don't want to hear that right now when teachers are working from home, but it is not easy. And we want, at least I wanted deeply to be with my students, see them face to face. I missed the classroom. It was like midway midway through April, I, I said to my husband, I really hope we go back next week. And he took a look at me and squinted his eyes and he said, you taught your last day in the classroom. Who are you kidding? They're not going back till next year. And I just cried. And I'm not even really an emotional person, but I, I just lost it. Like, I didn't think about that. I didn't think that I wasn't going to see them and walk them through the rest of this and get through graduation. I, that never occurred to me. I think to assume good intention is... Most of us are really just trying our best with very limited resources at times.
0: Well said. Yeah, very well said. They're great advice. And hopefully everyone that listens takes a pause, right? Before they say something or that they react and they, they come with that good intentions.
2: Yes. And if I could say one more thing, I can see Please. how it's... Ex- frustrating to see teachers still working from home and parents having to go to work and and not knowing necessarily what to do with their kids because their kids are at home and they have to learn from home and it's not an ideal situation. It isn't an ideal situation for us either. I know I'm in person right now, but it's not an ideal situation for us either. And I think the faster we can get back to quote unquote normal and the faster we can vaccinate our, our teachers, um, and hopefully our kids, the, the faster we can get back to a world that's, you know, serving to all of us. Because I understand completely that parents are in a very difficult position right now.
0: 100%. And we need to vaccinate the teachers. I know that there's still a lot of teachers out there who have not had the opportunity to get that vaccine. So yes. they need to be on the top of the list, no doubt there.
2: Yes. Our state actually just approved the COVID vaccine for teachers, but it's limited. I'll give you an example. They approved 90 some thousand vaccine doses, but there are 165,000 teachers in the Commonwealth. So that obviously puts people in a situation. Up A school that I know locally said that there are 106 of them, but they said that they only have 90 some vaccines available. So it puts people in a situation of who's going to get it and who's going to get left out.
0: That's really tough. We got to figure out a way to fix that because every teacher, everyone who's working in a school needs to be vaccinated. I agree. So we're going to shift a little bit right now. And you are actually our first guest who went to Penn State for a master's degree. So very curious to hear some of your answers here, but we're going to transition to the Lions Den, which uh, is a segment dedicated to your time at
1: Dear Old State. Okay, so oh, Jen, we we really appreciate you talking us through your very impressive career. We have obviously have the up- utmost respect for what you have done and what you're doing. We're curious here, when you were going through your master's at Penn State, how did that aspect of your education prepare you for your career in education?
2: Sure. So I was already in the classroom when I was at Penn State. So I had already been in a classroom for several years, and the place that I worked offered to pay for our master's in full at the Penn State rate. So I said, well, that's where I'm going to go to school. So how did it prepare me? It actually taught me, more than anything, two, two major things. I learned a lot of the legal aspect of education that I don't think I would have really obtained anywhere else. I had an opportunity to take classes on educational policy and laws in education that I had no idea existed. And that part blew me away. I felt like I was armored with rights when I walked out of those classrooms. And I, and I really understood what I could do, what I couldn't do, and what could and could not be done to me as a professional. That was extremely informative. The other part that I will say I came away with was I came away with a much better understanding of Native American education in this country. I had no idea uh, really about anything related to that. And because Penn State has a program for people who are working in schools on reservations and, and also just native American education in general, I was able to be in class most of the time with people working in those scenarios who are living in state college, getting a degree. That was fascinating. It was a part of history. I really didn't know anything about.
0: Very interesting. I think we both learned something completely new right there. (laughs) So this one's usually the toughest question of them all. And I'm really curious your answer. Favorite Penn state memory.
2: That's a really tough question. What's my favorite Penn State memory? I didn't live on campus, so my life was really different. I will say that State College was an escape for me. It's a far more populated, believe it or not, far more diverse place than where I live. And so it was this step into academia and knowledge that allowed me to really grow and Feel a bit more at home, if I will, but my like particular memory, you mean one specific thing?
0: Yeah, go for it if you have uh, one.
2: I sat next to a man in one of my classes named Bernie Chimony. He was working in New Mexico in a reserva- in a school in a reservation, and he was teaching me words in his native language during class while we were waiting for something to be done. And I remember looking at him and I thought. I would never have had the opportunity to learn a single word in your language. I wouldn't have known anything about this at all had I not gone to Penn State, enrolled in this class, and been with all of these people in this particular room. And that professor, whose name I cannot remember, had us all bring a dish every class. So this is where that whole breaking bread thing came from, too. And I remember thinking, like, oh, this is going to be so much work. After work, I have to go home and make a meal for 25 people and bring it in. And it was beautiful. Because everybody brought in something from their cultural heritage, but I was learning about other people and that is more valuable to me than anything else.
1: So you went to Cabrini for undergrad, which for those that don't know, is a small liberal arts school right in suburban Philadelphia, not far from where I live. And so if you could go back and visit with the 18-year-old version of yourself entering Cabrini... Still a few years away from going to Penn State for your masters but when you were 18 years old what advice would you share with yourself?
2: That's a great question. <laughs> what advice would I share with my 18 year old self? I mean that was the year I really pulled my life together and worked harder and concentrated more on school so I can't tell myself to like, you know, pull it all together, but I will say that I wasn't that social. I was so obsessed with succeeding in school because I wasn't so successful with that in high school. I wanted to make myself super academically proud. And I was also working full-time because I didn't have a ton of money. So I was going to school all day and I was working all night and I really never stopped to get to know a lot of the people that I lived with or lived around. It was the first time I was really living in a Homogeneous place where everybody wasn't super diverse and I blew it off and thought, I don't really need all this. And if I could go back and tell my 18 year old self to do something, believe it or not, I would have told myself to chill out and be more social. How boring actually, is that? Again?
0: <laughs> you know what? We've actually had a few people say that as well. Just relax, yeah. have fun, understand that this, you know, where you are in your life. So yeah. it's interesting to hear that answer from you as well. <laughs> Now, along the advice lines, when someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm considering college, maybe getting my master's or maybe even a bachelor's, and they're saying, I'm thinking about Penn State, what Mm -hmm. do you say to them?
2: It's right down the road, and it's going to offer you a variety of opportunities. If you can do it, do it. It's this massive institution of of academia and culture. It's a research one school. Go. Go. If you don't want to go too far from home, but you want that real university experience, do it if you can.
1: Excellent. Couldn't agree more. And how do you feel most connected to the university these days?
2: I have become somewhat involved in the alumni mentor program for the College of Education. That's how I got hooked up with you guys. And so for a while there, I was mentoring a young lady who was majoring in education and would periodically seek my advice.
0: This has been amazing. I think there's not enough time to actually say the amount of thank yous that we want to say to you, because you're someone that has impacted hundreds, if not thousands of people's lives. And you exemplify a great educator, a great teacher, a great mentor. And it's been an honor to have you online legacy and represent all of the teachers throughout the nation, all of the the educators who have graduated from Penn State as well. are continuing to make a difference in in people's lives. So thank you so much. We wish you continued success. We look forward to seeing where you go in the world and what you bring back to the classroom. But we know that you certainly will continue to impact many people's lives for many, many more years to come.
2: Thank you. That's super, super kind. And I appreciate you having me on tonight.
0: Of course. And we always end with we are Penn State. Lion Legacy is a Baruda production. If you enjoyed this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you
1: would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.